Welcome back to another episode of the Everything Aviation Podcast. My name's Mikey, and the aim of this podcast is to talk to everybody in aviation. On this week's episode, we have Rob Squire, aeronautical engineer in the commercial airline industry, and he's also training to be a a private pilot. So... Rob, how are we? I'm fantastic, Mikey. You? Yeah, not bad. Now it's a bit warm. We're, uh, we're sitting here, 35 degrees heat. Every window in the place opened. But um, yeah, so Rob, you are training to be a private pilot and are an aeronautical engineer. First of all, I have to ask this everyone this question: How did you get into aviation? <laughs> um, well, I could suppose you could blame a granddad for that. I was brought up on a diet of Battle of Britain films and war documentaries and. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have a choice really. I was sat on a sofa with a can of ginger beer watching Spitfire fly around from day one. When I was six or seven, my poor parents, I used to drag them up to Heathrow to watch the planes landing and taking off from the visitor centre. And then, lo and behold, I started earning my own money, decided I want to start burning it on something. I couldn't spend buying alcohol at the time, so I decided to start taking flying lessons. And yeah, and it goes from there. And before you know, I'm on an apprenticeship with BA, trained as an engineer with BA, and now I've come back to the flying side of it. I now work for EasyJet, so gone full circle there, but nothing wrong with low cost. And here we are, yes, 25 hours in to a PPL, going great guns. It's all good. Brilliant. And you come up with, 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 with like, we're watching Spitfires and everything like that. How did you end up into the kind of engineering side of it all? Um, I suppose you could say it was a, an, a mistake on my part in that I wanted to go straight into commercial training but for my sins I missed out on the qualifications grade necessary um, and didn't have the money at the time so I thought well I know I want to be in aviation I'm not going to go back and do A levels again I I can't afford to jump straight into Oxford so what are we going to do then sure enough look on the BA recruitment website aeronautical apprenticeships great I like engineering all my granddads were engineers before me my granddad on my dad's side of the family worked for Martin Baker he was on the ejector seat line there so we had sort of aviation in our blood, even though no one flew. So I thought, well, hey, I can work with my hands. Let's give this a go. And three years later, I'm qualified. I've come out with A-license modules. And, yeah, now I'm five, six years into the career. Nearly got my license completed working as a mechanic, but a senior mechanic. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's all good. Brilliant. And just, just going back, because I'm illiterate when it comes to engineering side like the best thing i could do was probably turn a screwdriver and, and a bolt uh, what what kind of license are there? you mentioned you mentioned the a license there so what would that in, entail how would you get that and what does that allow you to do so the you can think of the a license as an intermediate license you in simple terms have three grades of engineer in commercial aviation at most companies it doesn't go for all you have mechanics a licenses or technicians as they're known or B1 engineers, they're known as LAEs at British Airways, they're known as empty mechs at Lufthansa, or just straight up B1 engineers at EasyJet. Um, mechanics, typically opening panels and doing what they are told. A licenses have, do what you're told, but you can also sign off and take full responsibility for some of the minor servicing tasks, changing wheels, changing brakes, some minor inspections, and the B1 is the full bore you can sign off the aircraft. There is one more step above that I should also mention, which is a C license, which I can't remember the amount of years you need to have held it for, but a B1, after a certain amount of years of working on an aircraft, holding his license, a 
Cruiser C license, which allows him to issue a CRS or Certificate of Release to Service. So when the aircraft comes in, I work in a hangar environment for a check. The final piece of paperwork that says, yes, this plane is fit to fly, it can now re-enter service, it's no longer under maintenance, the C license will sign that off, and he's taking ultimate responsibility for the check and the paperwork. However, the B1s still have a big influence on it and are the ones typically overseeing or doing the heavy work. Brilliant. So, in, in layman's term, for like myself, um, a B1 would be experienced captain, kind of in the engineering world, yes. and then the C license. That's you're that's looking at training captain. captain. Yeah, and I suppose A license would be senior first officer, mechanic first officer. If you're going to look at it in those terms, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. And obviously, you said you you started off as a as an apprenticeship of British Airways, yeah. which for people out there. Um, it, it's not all about the, the pilot side of it. It's just the only side that people see. So for anyone who would be interested in a career in aviation and would want to get into, say, engineering, what does an apprenticeship BA look like? Apprenticeship with BA, I mean, I suppose it, it follows your standard apprenticeship structure if you have any idea what that would be. Um, the entry requirements are broadly speaking the same. I believe now they want you to have some form of engineering qualification. That could be in motor vehicles, could be in just any form of engineering, design engineering. Um, but in essence, it consisted for me of three years, a year um, of spending a month in each area. I was working in the SEP, uh, with Safety Equipment Practical Training Centre with cabin crew. Um, I was working on the line station at Heathrow at Terminal 5 on long-haul aircraft, on short-haul aircraft. I was in the long-haul AOG hangar, which is, okay, imagine 747, something goes wrong. Oh, it got it. It needs a flap change or it desperately needs some heavy work done to it, typically hangar work, they'll bring it into the hangar and it's all rush, rush, rush. Get it done as quickly and as safely as possible. Obviously everything is in accordance with the AMM, which I didn't mention earlier, aircraft maintenance manual, it's the bible of engineering. And everything is in accordance with the AMM on whatever revision state it is. Um, and then I suppose I was also in casualty hangars in short haul. Um, it's just going around the company and then the next two years, you crack on with your modules and you'll do six month placements to get greater experience um, in each area and you'll have what they call a CAP 741 which is uh, in layman's terms I suppose you could say like a pilot's logbook, um, it's an engineer's logbook, you record every job you do, every type you work on and it all goes in there and at the end of it when you've got your modules and you have the required experience you submit that to the CAA, go here you go, they have a look at it, either you've done something horrendously wrong and they give it back to you and say please go and do this again or hopefully, without warning, you'll have your license come through in the post and hey, hey, straight on, crack on. Brilliant. I didn't realise that you, you actually work along with the CAA there as well. Obviously, I should have probably known that for people listening, CAA is the Civil Aviation Authority and they're the governing body of all aviation basically in the United Kingdom. Um, so that's quite good to know that they're, they're keeping an eye oh, and stuff. Oh, it's regulated, it, very regulated, yeah. Not much goes on without them knowing about it. <laughs> Brilliant, that's good to know because you guys are working on the airplanes and stuff. So, um, What's your, what's your favourite part of, of working on, on the aircraft? Is there a certain thing you love to work on, like the engines or, or the undercarriage? Or do you just, in, in general, is, is that a thing, do engineers have this thing of where, oh, I love doing that job? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose... I, I enjoy all of it. The one that I can imagine everyone say you enjoy least of is the cabin work, predominantly the waste system. Everybody hates Chapter 38 work, so, oh, okay, I've said that now, I've got to explain quickly. <laughs> the aircraft maintenance manual is broken down into chapters. ATA Air Transport Association decided at the Chicago Invention to keep manuals for aircraft simple, we're going to divide it into chapters, and each chapter correlates to a section 
of the aircraft you're working on. So in the instance there, I said chapter 38. Chapter 38 covers water and waste. So, I mean, I don't know all the numbers. Some really sad people out there do. Some people say it's part of the job. I just tell them no. I mean, you've got it on your computer. You don't need to know them. Other people like to say, have a bit of, well, I'm better than you. I know all the chapters off by heart. But I know that one because I've had the unfortunate pleasure of working on it. But that would be the one I say at least like. Um, engines are always good fun. Can be very, very hot can be very, very annoying and very, very expensive when things go wrong. But I mean, as a, as a general rule of thumb, where I work in a, a light-based maintenance hangar, I get to do a vast array of tasks on the aircraft that range from everything from an engine change to a wheel change to changing a simple water filter in the system. So I get a good all-round sort of level of experience and knowledge from doing what I do, and I love all of it, really. So Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And is, is there a favourite... Of a favourite moment that you've had um, with, with, with changing anything on aircraft or any, anything that you sit back on like Jesus can't believe I did that I suppose one of the things for me I mean coming I obviously appreciate the pilot side of things and I like the flying side of things I geek out on the engine runs and I remember my first engine run at BA we've just changed I think it was a thrust reverser so we're sat in the run pen at Heathrow I think it was four o'clock in the morning starting the engines up I'm the apprentice up in the cockpit I'm sat in the third occupant seat behind the thrust levers and um, it's like oh okay Rob would you like to deploy the thrust reverses and I'm getting to watch all the numbers and gauges move and hey completely sad if you haven't got a clue what I'm on about but for me as a first time just sitting on the 320 that's running up power and pulling reverse thrust. That was that was good crack. That was good fun. That's that's fantastic. So the fact that you actually get to sit there and play with oh, the yeah. engines and the shuttles and stuff. Are you guys trained to to start them? Obviously to start them aircraft and possibly do, do you guys taxi them at all to get them from A to B or is it all towing and tugging and? Um, so yeah, certainly I'm personally I'm not. Um, but everybody who is trained to run engines does have an approval for that. Um, there are in other countries approvals for taxiing. They used to happen a lot in this country, but that that no longer happens. Um, it's most of it now is all done under towing. You, I, in five or six years, have never ever sat on an aircraft and had to taxi. Um, but they certainly used to. Um, it happened at Gatwick. It happened at Heathrow. But, but you, you guys are, are trained to to start the the jet turbine engines basically and and play with them as, as to say. Yeah, yeah. As as per the manual says, or as per your task says. Yeah. So you've changed the engine. It varies from airline to airline, but someone who is engine run trained will be in the cockpit, typically a B1. There will be two of you there for safety reasons, maybe even a third person. You're trained to do it, you'll go through, you'll brief. It would be similar to a takeoff check. You, you sit there, you discuss escape options, what you would do, who you would call. You call the tower for approval to run the engine. Um, to where I am now, Gatwick, we have to get tugged down to an approved engine running location, which is basically at each end of the runway on a taxiway to one side, because you've got the two runways there. You've got the emergency one, some people don't know about that, that acts as a taxiway when the main one's in use sometimes. It's basically at either end of that. So you sit there, the tug and tow bar are withdrawn from the aircraft, moved to one side, you sit there, whoever's in charge starts up, and then you have a series of checks that you run through. You typically give it a five-minute warm-up cycle, maybe two minutes at a certain thrust rating, you'll check functions, run tests, and uh, then you bring it down for five minutes cooling, shut down and go back to the hangar, hope it's all thumbs up, no leaks, and off it goes, back into service. So. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So you get to play with all this all this kit, which is amazing. Um, and you were mentioning earlier that um, if something goes pop, it can be very, very expensive. I take it when you guys are looking at parts and part numbers and stuff, you're gonna see the prices of these. Is it a case of just where you've just got to glaze over on, on the prices of these and just just go with it because you'll be talking 
numbers that some of us will never see in our lifetimes. Uh, most definitely, yeah. I mean, we they're not advertised directly in front of us, but certainly on some forms of paperwork with parts, you would see how much it is. But you you just ignore the numbers of the price. Obviously, the part numbers you pay very strict attention to. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's safety first in all aspects. And if it needs changing, it needs changing. Um, the B1s take the overall responsibility for saying if something needs replacing. Um, but we're we're all capable and trained to go. Hey, something isn't right here. And it, it's not as a oh that's an expensive part. Could it fly for another three months? Because the checks I do are at a three month old um, oh, on a three month cycle. Um, it, it's just no. If it, if it's broken, it's broken. Fix it. It also is though very much applied. If it ain't broken, don't fix it. Some people there are limits to wear, and some people for some unknown reason, maybe it's their own internal safety compass or bearing, whatever you want to call it. They love changing things before they're broken, some of them, which in a low-cost airline does not work. And it's, one, frustrating for us because we're on tight time constraints with the turnarounds, particularly in the summer, unlike the one we're having at the moment because we really don't have much time pressure. But on a typical summer with EasyJet, it's, um, it's very much busy. And the work packs are planned almost down to the minute that you finish in order to release that aircraft to make its five o'clock departure or whatever is planned for that day. So yeah, ignore the number, safety first, but as the manual says, within limits is within limits. Due, due to COVID-19, obviously, there's been, there's been a massive decline in, in commercial aviation because no one's flying, all the borders are closed. Have you guys seen a massive kind of, has, has this been a time where your company has turned around and been like, everything that's ever needed doing, let's do it now? In essence, yeah. I mean, where we're in a hangar and we're running on what a P-check schedule, so the aircraft come in for elements of C-check, which is a, a pretty heavy check, which would mean the aircraft will be on the ground for a few weeks. We do a night every three months and do elements of that C-check. So they're all slightly different, but they, in essence, you get used to the routine tasks that are repeated. That carried on with us. Um, I was personally furloughed, and they, purely for the social distancing requirements, where we're typically in a two-bay hangar with 25 people, we were most nights getting one aircraft um, with half a number of people, or it would be one aircraft and something with a minor problem, they call it um, like an AOG aircraft on ground event. It could be something minor, it could be something major, but they, they did reduce the workload, but it kept ticking over. Whereas the guys on the line, so the line operation, the guys, they're sitting under your terminals, you're waiting in on departure. They're the guys whizzing around doing daily checks, minor problems, or major problems, and even in fact, um, and will be the ones called out to your plane if it does go tech on departure and it's something that can be fixed quickly. They were bashing ADDs, um, that's acceptable deferred defects to anyone who doesn't know that, and they got it down to a point where they were pretty much all clear, so these guys were, the aircraft were in perfect condition, nothing wrong at all, um, and they were coming in for a night shift and going home quite early to be honest with you, they were doing the routine dailies, whereas we were carrying on as per normal. The only difference I suppose we have was we were putting a lot of aircraft into a park configuration, which is draining down water tanks, covers on engines, pressing the ditching switch so all the external valves and doors close and covering up pito and static heads and just putting the aircraft into a condition where they can be made airworthy overnight, say, quite quickly, but it, in a long-term park situation on the ground like they were, it keeps them safe, keeps them ready to fly, and ultimately, yeah, thank God it's now relaxing and we're all starting to fly again. Brilliant. You're effectively just putting the aircraft into a hibernation state then, ready to ready to rock and roll, so should should the time come, like you said, everything's starting to ease now, we're all starting to go on holidays, we're all starting to fly again, which is which is fantastic. 
Um, and have you have you ever been sent anywhere with an aircraft to, to kind of like mind it, as, as to say? No, I haven't. I've certainly worked with people that used to fill the role of flight engineer. Um, and I unfortunately haven't had the opportunity yet. We do get the opportunity to go, as an, if an aircraft breaks down route, you certainly get the opportunities to go and fix them. I personally haven't done that yet. But you, you do hear some good stories of triple sevens broken down in Jamaica and the guys are going out there to change an engine and outside and they all come back in shorts with hula shirts on and tanned as anything and <laughs> they've just been on a week's holiday and changed an engine but no, it happens unfortunately not for me yet but never say never. I remember going to um, I think it was Lapland last year and you're going into conditions at a minus 30 that's a warm day for them like and uh, I remember we had to bring an engineer with us because even when we were sat in the ground he had to be there just making sure all the systems were kept running and everything, just so nothing froze and everything. And it was he he, he loved it. He had a, he had a great day out. Um, we we just plied him with, with tea and coffee for the day, and and, and he loved it. I, I understand that you had quite an exciting time while while with BA, uh, which involved one of the biggest air shows in in the world. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure thing. So I was lucky enough as an apprentice in my first year to be selected to go to Ria. Uh, Royal International Air Tattoo that those that don't know but I can imagine most of you do at Fairford um, and this particular year BA were flying one of their bespoke A318s in which is well again for those of you that don't know they fly from London City on the old Concorde flight numbers and they do a stop in Shannon the passengers get off and clear US internal customs in Shannon before flying on to New York as a US internal flight so there's no long check at the other side they just walk out as domestic um, and those 318s are equipped with 32 business class seats so it's quite it's a luxury and it, it, like I said they fly on the old Concorde numbers there is an essence of oh this is for the elite and it was like going on Concorde I mean it's not that speed but the service is comparable and I suppose the size of the cabin would be as well and this flew into Ria um, was stationed there on the line with the crowds walking around it and we were basically just question responders for the day so there was various people gathering around this thing um, asking us questions it was a pretty good day really we got to meet the flight crew we're in a nice position at the end of the runway so we can stand on the aircraft steps we've got a lovely view down the runway and no sort of I suppose you could say blow my own trumpet spending a day a bit like an aviation celebrity I mean let's face it we're not we'll be apprentices but it certainly felt like that so no it was a great day had by all really so. I was gonna say it must, it must be really strange because not many civilian aircraft will get to go into there uh, especially around riot because riot is, is mainly all the air force in the world come together and have a big uh, my muscles are bigger than your muscles display session and um, so it must have been really really cool to just even for yourself just to be there with this probably like one of the only civilian aircraft that were on the on, on the field at the oh, time yeah most definitely i mean because I suppose you could say we felt out of place, but it's good wearing the BA brand, walking around. It's You don't get the same looks as the guys walking around in the G-suits with the helmets in their hand. Oh, I've just landed from an F-22 Raptor and done my display. It's like, hey, I'm stood up with the Airbus over there if you want to come for a chat. But no, there's certainly a level of respect there. And it is, no, it's a fantastic day. Fantastic day. Brilliant. Was there much interest in the Airbus? Um, yeah, surprisingly. I mean, I think a lot of people just wanted to come on board and sit in a business class seat. Um, but there were quite a few people asking the technical questions, which, I mean, I knew answers to at the time, but where that is quite a bespoke aircraft, and I hadn't worked on it ever, um, I couldn't always answer all of them. But there was no, there was a large interest, and although it wasn't officially an open display, we there were certain friends and family that were coming on board, we were showing around, and the crew were all there talking to us. So, yeah, it was a busy day. It was a busy day. Brilliant. So, you've, you've done your engineering side, and you've, you've been bitten by the bug at an early age in aviation. So then you went and decided, 
sod this, I want to be in the front seat. How did you even go about starting to, to, to get your PPL? Well, I started when I was 10 or 11, like I was saying earlier. Had a bit of money, want to spend it, what are we going to do? Oh yeah, let's make a flying lesson for £160 an hour. And that was also, that was with the, I believe they called it the Airways Flying Club at Booker. Um, and they've got these wonderful BA livery Piper Warriors there. Um, which, I mean, great fun. Again, you fly into places feeling like a bit of celebrity. You don't. <laughs> Obviously, it's a game. It's ridiculous. But it was good fun. I was flying, probably doing an hour or two a year, birthdays, Christmas presents type thing. Um, took the step back from that. Studies as, as an apprentice and had to sort of concentrate a bit more. And I've now, I now, I live down in Sussex with my partner on a farm. And I found a local gliding club. And I actually started flying again there at the gliding club. Um, it was cheap. It was great fun. Um, I did probably 18 months of that. Um, got somewhere near Solar Standard, but where we're so close to the coast, the sea breeze would blow in it. Um, sometimes lunchtime, sometimes later in the day, and it ruins all the thermals. Um, so I was going off of a winds launch to a thousand feet back on the ground within three minutes and it wasn't shall we say the best for gaming experience so I thought no I'm, I'm going to do this properly now joined a flying club about two miles to the south of there <laughs> at Deanland with Flight Sport Aviation and flying well it's a group A aircraft called a Carbon Sting made in the Czech Republic um, little 100 horsepower Rotax engine uh, constant speed propeller glass cockpit uh, a very nice little set of plane so yeah, I've been flying that now. I've accumulated nearly 25 hours in the last, well, I started September. I've got nine hours over winter with the weather being so poor. Three months COVID lockdown, and now I've just been hammering it again. I've started doing my nav cross country practice, and now all is going well. The plan is to hopefully have it within the next few months, but we shall see what happens. But it, no, it's, it's going very well. Brilliant, and you know, I'm, I'm a member of Flight Sport Aviation myself, and I do love it down there, and there's a great, great crew and a great bunch of people. What, just tell us what, what the Sting is, is, is like to fly. Um, the Sting is a very, very light, fast, responsive little training aircraft, really. Um, it, it's, it's available in, I believe, an ultralight conversion as well, or a microlight version. It, there are various design changes that happen there. But in essence, it's a carbon composite build monocoque frame with a Rotax engine bolted to the front. A nice, I don't know, it's quite attitude dependent. Um, and it, it, it's, it can be quite a lot of pressure required to fly in the approach on the back, sorry, back pressure on the stick. Um, you can't necessarily trim all of that out, but it's very capable. It, it can sit at 120 knots if you really want to. It'll only burn 20 litres an hour. It, like I said, glass cockpit, constant speed propeller is very efficient in compar comparison to your Piper Warrior types. And that is great. It's a training aircraft. I couldn't ask for more. It's so much cheaper to run than even a Cessna 152. Given the choice of a Cessna 152 for a similar hourly rate, I would choose a Sting every time. It's just, it's capable. It can go anywhere. It rides through crosswinds fantastically. Um, I was really quite surprised. I thinking, I mean, the thing empty is 300 kilos typically taking off with full fuel around 600 kilos or just under hopefully um, but even then it's still very capable it cuts through wind it cruises well it climbs well it, it does everything you want and more really so as a trading plane i couldn't ask for more brilliant so it, it, it's lovely for yourself who, who 
just started a PPL to jump into this and go and fly with, with, with instructors and stuff and just just have great fun doing it. Uh, what has been like one one of your most memorable flights while while you've been training so far? I suppose one of the longer ones. Um, I'm very fortunate to have a very very experienced instructor who was a previous training captain with BA on types such as the A320 and Boeing 767. He he's sort of a been there done it all type and um, he's very very keen to push your boundaries within your limits I mean he's flying with me at the moment um, and I've done cross countries flying up as far as seething just outside Norwich landing going across to Huntingdon coming back down south slightly and landing at Duxford I had quite a memorable experience coming to Duxford he's a, um, a pilot a resident pilot at Duxford that flies with classic wings I believe um, in their Tiger Moth occasionally um, and we came in on basically a mirrored circuit with a Catalina flying boat. So we're in a right-hand circuit for a grass runway. The Catalina's in a left-hand circuit for the same runway. And he's we've called number two, he's called number one, and we've basically flown in behind him. And quite surprisingly, he got a similar approach speed to us. So we really had to open our circuit up. And that was quite memorable, coming in to Duxford with a Catalina in front of you, straight onto the grass runway. Not busy at the time, because this was at the more relaxed end of the COVID restrictions when flying instruction had just been opened back up. And then after landing at Dutchford, cruising back home to Deanland through Stansted's uh, TMZ, which is transponder mandatory zone, you put your transponder on, put a squawk on, if you're mode S capable, and any problems above a certain, well, you stay below a certain altitude, any problems, the controller will speak to you. And um, no, it's great fun, have by all, really. You had Airbuses and Boeing's coming in 2,000 feet above us on their approaches and flying through some fairly busy airspace with great views of London as well. That was really quite nice. If you haven't been flying, you wouldn't know what it's like. But those that do, London is pretty spectacular from the air and that financial district stands out like a sore thumb. So being as close to that and flying over the Thames at Dartford was great fun and then back home to Dingland. So. Brilliant. And I, I, I hear like not many people in their career can say they, they've shared the same airspace as a Spitfire. Yeah. I myself, I've been lucky. I was, I was flying down to, to Goodwood with, with my other half um, to, to go on a very expensive lunch date, as to say. And uh, one of them came the other way, uh, opposite us, just, just past Shoreham and rocked his wings. And I, I believe you're one of the lucky ones who have, who have shared uh, an airspace with a Spitfire also. Oh, definitely. So that was, again, me and Tony laugh about this. I, it's whenever I fly, we have a Spitfire magnet in the back of the aircraft. Twice on a trip to Seething, Duxford and home again, we, well, you couldn't have called it an airprox, but we were flying through the Lake and Heath mats and were given a warning of traffic ahead, similar altitude um, and coming head on, but at significantly higher speeds. So we're looking out, we see it on the horizon, we make our turn to the left, it turns to the left. Of course, it's a Spitfire flying by at 220 odd knots, whatever, waggling his wings at us. And um, that was something. Then coming home, just over, well, I suppose it was just north of Biggin Hill, we had Spitfires in front of us. And then again, yesterday, um, or the, sorry, the day before yesterday on a flying lesson, we were trying to give capable Lafern a fly past and we were very rudely interrupted just as we were space 700 feet above the cliff top wag about to waggle our wings we had a bloody interception from a spitfire that shot past us and stole our thunder so there's everyone there's people at the war memorial so you can see them getting ready to wave at us and a few are and then at this point their heads go right our engine gets drowned up by some roaring merlin engine and uh, yeah, we're totally outdone by a barrel rolling Spitfire <laughs> going past about the river more and more. And more. 
<laughs> that is fantastic. As I, I know myself, every time I try to be cool, I just flop. Oh, so yeah. I've stopped trying to be cool these days now. Um, but that that is absolutely fantastic. So have you you got a time frame now that you're hoping to to have the PPL in the back pocket by? Um, it would be nice to think it could be done while the weather's still good this flying this summer flying season. Um, that will have to be allowed for with COVID restrictions. I don't know if we're going to go into lockdown again. But I'd like to think at the rate I'm going, I'll be at the 45 hours and ready for GST within the next two or three months. So hopefully, maybe end of September, middle of October, if the weather's still playing ball with us, could be possibly have a licence then and ready for next year, hopefully. I mean, who knows what winter holds for us, but we're on a grass one way, so it can be a bit limiting if we do get a lot of wet weather. But we still like to fly, obviously, if we can, we do. Just have to jet wash the planes at the end of the day, you get a bit of a muddy underside. But yeah, hopefully this year would be a nice thought. Would be a nice thought. Brilliant. It'd be great, great to do it before Christmas because you know some of the some of the best weather to fly in is during the winter. Mm. You can get up nice early morning, and even no matter if the runway is meant to be waterlogged, if it's frozen, it's rock solid and it's lovely. It's like it's like tarmac at that stage, and air is so smooth as well. Um, what what does a standard G general skills test or general flight test, as it's known as, look like for the PPL that you are working for? I'm not fully aware of its format. In all honesty. Um, I know it's typically two, two and a half hours of flying. Um, there'll be elements of navigation. Um, there'll be a simulated diversion, possibly simulated engine failure as well, I believe. You'll be asked to find airfields, possibly with and then possibly without GPS navigation with an app such as Sky Demon. Um, so, for example, like when we're flying along, typically we'll have, we'll have our chart, we'll work from the chart, but Sky Demon's in the background just as a helpful reminder and it, it, on the cross countries it is fantastic you, you can have your frequencies everything set up um, and you know exactly where you are and you can really navigate these bits of airspace really effectively but going back to the GST it's you will have sections of it where it will be turned off and you're expected to work solely from the chart um, radio work circuits I mean it, it's, it's very it's a general skills test the idea is as far as I'm aware that you're tested on everything you've learned so steep turns stalling stall recovery so yeah it's quite it's covers everything it's very thorough <laughs> that's what we like cause, you know these are all the important bits yeah. that uh they kind of, kind of need to know when when flying the aircraft but uh it it, it is a fantastic thing to do and we'll, we'll be waiting uh, with, with very open ears to hear now when, when, you, when you're going to do it and and how it goes and stuff so we might even get a follow-up yeah, uh, yeah, a, a follow-up <laughs> rob it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today thank you very much for coming on to the to the show and talking to us and um best of luck with with everything in in, in the future uh, thank you very much hope to speak to you all again soon hopefully with a license